Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Stephen Muirs, author of Culture and Values at the Heart of Policymaking, published by Policy Press. In the book, Stephen looks at why culture and values matter when making decisions about public policy. Why do so many government policies fail to achieve their objectives? Why are our political leaders not held to account for policy failures? We will find out more today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for speaking to me today. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let's start with your background. You've had a range of high-level policymaking and strategy roles. And like the subtitle says, this really is an insider's guide. And one of the things I loved about the book was that there are so many examples, whether it be the Queen's Speech, British values in the national curriculum, and I think you even include shark attacks in the book. Please, can you tell us a bit about your background and where the idea of the book came from? Of course. Yeah, I'm delighted to. So much of my career um, I spent working in British central government in one sh- shape or another. Um, it includes uh, the Cabinet Office, Department of Energy and Climate Change, the Ministry of Justice and others. Um, and then also I've also worked in the wider public sector in the UK in both executive and non-exec roles and are now more in the non- non-profit sector, but still with a, a focus on policy change and social change. And the book really came out of a, a set of reflections um, as I've gone through my career, and firstly around the fact that the, the frustration that political leaders and officials and policymakers often were feeling about why why a policy didn't do what they thought it was going to do, why a well-crafted, um, well-researched, seemingly intelligent, sensible policy didn't feed through into the results that people people were looking for, and this this yeah, is a well-known phenomenon. It's nothing new. Um, but when I started reflecting on this, talking to people, hearing actually what political leaders were saying around why things weren't working and the frustrations they were feeling, the theme of culture kept on coming up. And that's both culture um, in society as a whole and culture within like, public institutions and the bodies that are delivering policy. And so culture uh, was constantly being raised. And therefore, as a theme that I reflected on during my professional practice, it, it kept, kept coming out. There's sort of a linked phenomenon, as you mentioned in the introduction, this thing around around accountability and how it, again, kept striking me that um, both political, but also actually as a senior sort of policymaker level, not just the political um, players, um, things, policies that often go pretty badly wrong. There was then little kind of response to that. It seemed to have little impact, little change, little accountability for decision makers involved. And when I reflected on the dynamics that were in play there and the both political and sort of wider policy system dynamics that were driving those failures of accountability. Again, to the elements of culture and particularly how culture and values affected the political system uh, seemed to me to be a, a critical part of the explanation. Not the whole explanation. I'm not claiming in the book that culture and values are the only thing that matter in policy, but that they have often been downplayed. And if you think about them more, it helped me certainly reflect on how to conduct my practice as a policymaker differently in the way that I hope might possibly be more effective. So what do we mean by culture and values in this context and what's the difference between them? Yes, this is obviously a rather important sort of starting point. Um, And the first thing to pick up on on the difference between them is, although they're they're sort of conceptually different, uh, when it actually plays through in reality, in the practice, they get rather muddled together because... um, they're quite hard to, to distinguish in, in a sort of empirical sense. Um, but really around the, 
the elements I'm talking about here, and this is set out in some some more detail in the book, is firstly culture as um, the set of unwritten rules and norms that govern the, govern the way a society or an organization functions. So um, in any anywhere you work, any, anywhere anywhere you live, there's there's a set of sort of written things you're allowed to do. And there's a whole set of things that you know is kind of how things are done around here. There's those practices that everyone understands uh, and are often quite sort of deep seated and yeah, unwritten and sort of carried by stories and symbols and representations rather than, rather than the formal rules. That's that's one sort of part of part of culture. Um, and probably the most important cultural element. Then on, on values, there are a couple of sort of key elements there. One is around ethical values and value judgments. You know, what, what is good, what is right and what is wrong and how those judgments either being explicitly made by people or, or implicit choices that have an ethical content um, affect policy choices. That's another key part. And then a sort of a linked part of which is more values, but also has a cultural element around what I call sort of worldview. And that's um, people's sort of fundamental assumptions about how the world works. So this is things like uh, are, are, uh, assuming that other people are fundamentally selfish or that uh, institutions are fundamentally driven by financial concerns uh, rather than other, other um, dimensions or incentives or um, beliefs in sort of that certain bits of certain parts of science are the main way you explain most of what happens in the world. These kind of view, fundamental views about how things work at a sort of quite deep rooted level actually determine a lot of what um, flow through into a lot of these sort of uh, behaviours that I talk about in, in the book. Um, and then the, the final bit, which is a form of culture, I think, but is is probably less less culturally specific to individual uh, places or groups, and it is slightly broader. It's around um, the sort of shortcuts and heuristics people use for making decisions. So, at times of complexity and under pressure, faced with large amounts of information, uh, we all have um, yeah, ways of getting to conclusions that don't require us to understand the full range of information available in a sort of rational sense, and have yeah, rules of thumb, shortcuts, habits um, that, that cut through some of that, which which are very tied up with those other points about a worldview, what, what shortcuts you use will be linked to that, and also those sort of unwritten rules, because the unwritten rules of your organisation are a way of helping you shortcut complexity and pressure and excess amounts of information. So in, as a, in practice, all these things, although they're conceptually different, they sort of merge together into, a, into mm. a kind of how people behave in a, in a way that is less explained by formal rules and rationality and more by a whole set of other factors. So government, I mean, it's obvious, governments often struggle to make progress on complicated social problems. And you touched on it a little bit just then, but what impact do culture and values have in determining how the policy process works and what the outcomes are? You mentioned habits and things like that. Yeah, I, I think there are, there are sort of um, four main ways I draw out in the book that, that um, affect this, and I'll sort of cover, the, cover these reasonably briefly. I mean, the, the first one really um, is almost the most most obvious, and, and the one that is probably most familiar to uh, listeners who, who are into the public policy literature is around um, the way that culture in particularly frontline delivery organisations kind of mediates the way a policy flows through into delivery. Um, uh, you know, key bits of the public policy literature here would be um, Michael Lipsky's uh, street level bureaucrats and similar similar work of that sort, which emphasises how um, the culture in you know schools, police stations, etc., uh, it kind of mitigates or influences or filters a policy set by an education department or a 
the Home Office or, or whatever it might be. And the, and the actual policy outcome as experienced by citizens is determined as much by the unwritten rules of habit and practice um, that uh, yeah, exist in that particular locality as they do in the, in the policy framework. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting work in this space in sort of international development literature where you look at countries um, that implement similar policy frameworks or even within a country there's a policy framework and the outcomes in sort of develop, economic development terms in, in localities within that country are very, very different. And lots of scholars have shown in very interesting ways how um, sort of cultural assumptions and norms, particularly among kind of local elites in different localities, actually are more important for driving development path than the policy framework that uh, the central government and perhaps international aid donors have been focused on, on putting in place. That's so that's one here. One um, another bit is around the link between culture and values and legitimacy. Mm. And I make quite a point in the book about how um, legitimacy is inherently a good thing for a policy, um, not just because it helps it be implemented, but that uh, in a democratic society, we value legitimacy in and of itself. And what counts as legitimate in a given context is, is a very sort of values based um, judgment, if you like. It's very tied up with notions of fairness and due process and what is reasonable. And those are culture dependent and value dependent kind of phenomena. They're, they're, they're not um, uh, universal. They're very, very rooted in the, in the individual society. And then the, the other way I, I think uh, cultural values, particularly, particularly on the values point, it's important to take into account is that a lot of policymaking is actually about value judgments uh, and particularly just ethical value that are what's right or wrong or fair or just or reasonable is actually what a lot of policy questions are about. Those are the judgments mm. you're trying to make. Um, I think a, a really interesting example of this actually is in the, the current experience we're having with the coronavirus crisis, yeah. where the, the government is effectively having to make judgments about the trade-off between um, health and sort of economic well-being. And, and that's, there isn't a calculator that tells you that answer. There isn't a, a kind of neat way of doing it. That, that's fundamentally sort of ethical judgment. Which of those things do you think is more important as a society? Um, and so, so actually there you see directly how values are, come straight into policy making uh, and actually i think there's quite a lot of policy arguments that we have where there's a value an ethical judgment or a values-based choice sort of underneath it's kind of buried in the weeds and we don't always sort of get it out into the open and be, be clear about it uh, and then my, my final point um around the importance of cultural values policy making is how governments um affect culture and values in their societies um, some governments do this deliberately, and the classic example would be a sort of totalitarian government, but actually every government affects the culture and values of the society because the government's spending you know, 30, 40 percent of GDP, employing millions of people, often dominating the news agenda. You, you can't help but have an impact on the culture and values mm -hmm. of a society. So in which case, we should, I think governments should think about that consciously rather than having it as a sort of byproduct of everything else they're doing. It's amazing that how much of all this is unconscious isn't it we don't it doesn't seem like it is taken into account that much the culture and values thing and i suppose your book is about bringing it to the fore and reminding us of what a huge part it plays um so you mentioned legitimacy earlier and in the book you say that policies have to be seen to be legitimate to be successful and culture and values determine whether the public see them in this way um, and also, obviously, like you said, we're in coronavirus lockdown at the moment, and it feels like this has been an issue with some of the policies around lockdown and how we've been instructed to behave. Um, so the confu confusion around the rules and policies has maybe made people doubt the legitimacy of them. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the, um, the point that really sort of illustrated this in, in rather stark relief was the, the whole episode with Dominic Cummings and his trip to, um, trip to Durham. Yes, and exactly. The public, <laughs> the public outcry that, that, that um, occurred and the fact that you know, more than any other story in the whole of the crisis period, that was sort of the thing that dominated the front page for days and days and days and, and sort of really cut, appeared to cut through to members of the public. And I think a lot of that, or certainly what you saw in the media when, they, when the people were being asked about it, um, was around this sort of sense of fairness and legitimacy, that a, a rule is seen as legitimate if it applies to everybody, or certainly in, in, a, in our current society, that, that's quite a, a quite a fundamental part of what we see as legitimate about a, a rule or a law, is that it applies to everybody. Mm. And the perception in that case, you know, I don't know the details of the case, but, but the, the perception for many people was clearly that the rule wasn't being applied to everybody, and that undermined the legitimacy of the rule as a whole, um, it, with much wider implications. So I think, I think that's an interesting, interesting example um, of how how something and sort of almost a sort of symbolic action by one person. Ultimately, it's one person, and you know, what exactly he did or didn't do, we don't need to get into. But the fact that one person could be seen as a symbol of, that, that undermines the legitimacy of the whole thing, I think, is rather interesting. So then, what happens when it, that legitimacy is undermined? People stop following the policies, and the policies don't work. It's very, it's very delicate, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Or, or if they do follow the policies, they will resent it, um, or, or feel feel that they're sort of doing so, but will be be less less willing to do so, and mm. sort of negativity about it, which then can be damaging in the long run. Mm. So, following on from Dominic Cummings, in a way, uh, you focus a lot on accountability in the book, um, and MPs aren't always held accountable when things go wrong, and not only that, they kind of manage to stay in power and progress despite not keeping to promises they've made. So we think about Boris Johnson and his um, £350 million pledge to the NHS on the bus, um, promises to put more police on the streets, build more hospitals. There was an article in BBC News yesterday um, questioning what's happened to the report into Home Secretary Preeti Patel's alleged behaviour towards staff. Um, that's something that feels like maybe mm -hmm. it's disappeared a little bit. Is this lack of accountability an issue around culture and values and um, I, I think it is it is in part i think but i think the um, the the way in which uh, that sort of chain of causation if you like happens from culture and values to accountability problems is quite a complicated one right. uh, so if you'll give me a minute to sort of run through the, the, the thinking here a lot of this is about how values and culture affects the political system and affects voting behavior um because i, I think there's there's a classic sort of account of voting might be that people vote on the basis of, of policies. Do, do they like the policy that a, a particular party is uh, about to try and put in place? And or do they think that party's done a good job of implementing the policy? If it's the current incumbent government party, have they actually you know, governed the country well and done a good job? And that's where accountability you know, in one model comes in. However, I think there's quite a lot of evidence increasingly from different researchers that people don't really vote in that way, that people don't really vote on the basis of detailed policies because they don't believe they'll be implemented for the reasons we talked about earlier, because of frontline culture actually mediating that. And actually, it's a huge investment of time and effort to understand what detailed policies a party might be proposing. And you know, election manifestos can be 120, 130 pages long. No one's going to read those. Um, so, so people are not going to vote on the basis of checking through, has someone implemented all those, all those policies? And in fact, and, and there's quite a lot of evidence that actually a lot of voting is driven by 
a deeper sense of, sort of cultural alignment or value and values-based alignment with a party or a leader. So not do I agree with their policies, but are they the sort of people who I would like to have running the country? Do I think they're sort of basically in the right place in their instincts and in the way they approach things, which are much more rooted in a, a kind of set of underlying values, worldview and sort of cultural positioning? And if people are voting on that sort of basis, do I feel these are my sort of people who I'd like in charge? Then on accountability, whether or not they then do, in fact, implement a specific policy or not, is rather beside the point. I wasn't voting for them in the first place because they promised, you know, 10 new hospitals and, you know, 100 million pounds or whatever. I was voting because I, I voted for them because I sort of thought they were the right, they were, they were sort of people like me or people who embodied what I would like to have as the leadership of the country. Um, and the example about this, which I, I always talk about a lot and I've used in the book, is um, around Donald Trump and his pledge to build a wall and have Mexico to pay for it. Yeah. This is um, yeah, his, his probably number one headline grabbing initiative when he was uh, running for president in 2016. He'd build this wall on the border and Mexico would pay for it. And then there was an opinion poll on his inauguration day and they asked uh, you know, representative sample Americans a whole load of questions about Trump. Uh, and one of them was, do you think he actually will build a wall and get Mexico to pay for it? And only 14% of Americans thought he would actually do it. I was this really one, shocked at that statistic when I read it in the book. It's they, so yeah, low. He, yeah, he'd had, what was it, 46% or something of the vote. But so, so under half of the people who actually voted for him, let alone everyone else, yeah. thought that he would actually carry out his signature policy. And to me, that says that the policy is about... It, it, the policy was a symbol of the kind of person he was, his kind of approach to government, i.e. You know, break the rules, be nasty to foreign countries, you know, this kind of stuff, which is much more deep-seated and cultural. So there's no, then if he doesn't build the wall and have Mexico pay for it, which he clearly won't, there's not, not then accountability for that because no one actually ever expects him to do it. Do you think with the Preeti Patel story, do you think there's an element that some people might respect her for making firm decisions and... Be. I'm just wondering how that accountability applies to someone like that, who's done something kind of not good, like the way she allegedly has conducted herself with her staff. Does that mean that she'll get less respect? Maybe. I, I think on that one, the accountability question is probably slightly different. And it's it's just that most people won't notice the story or be very interested. I mean, we people like me who are obsessed by politics and policy mm. and games. You know, read all these things and forget that the vast majority of the public um, have very little bandwidth for anything to do with politics or policy at all. Yeah. Um, there's another bit I talk about in the book where um, uh, the opinion polling company Populous do this thing where they, they just ask people kind of unprompted what news stories you can remember from the last week. Uh, and frequently they get sort of hardly any at all. Or, or there's some examples where in the middle of the most intense period of all sort of Brexit stuff going on over the last couple of years when there were you know votes in parliament government being defeated like all over all the news and you were still getting kind of a quarter to a third of people in the sample who'd registered the fact that brexit was even a thing in the news that week yeah. it's, 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 we i say people like like me and policymakers and politicians actually and journalists do kind of just a misread kind of our obsessions for everyone else's and that's why another reason that accountability for very specific things is quite tricky because if you're relying on sort of electoral accountability through the ballot box, most people who are going to vote just won't know or remember those things. And quite recently, yeah. they're getting on with their job, looking after their kids, looking after their aged relatives, um, doing whatever they're doing. You know, they're in normal life and, and not worrying about the Home Secretary. Yeah, 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 that's a fair point. Um, 
in the book you look at how evidence is values based um, and in academia especially we tend to regard evidence as truth truth in quotation marks but you argue that this is problematic is academic research also guilty of ignoring culture and values and what impact does this have on policy um I, I think sometimes I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm not an academic or an expert in academic research, but I, I suppose I've seen a lot of how it plugs into the policy system. And I think the yeah the challenge often is actually as you say that that um, there can be a, a sort of a, a culture, if you like, in academia of sort of um, if something is demonstrated through empirical research, everyone should take it seriously. It sort of must be true. This is the answer. Yeah. Uh, and what I talk about in the book and how this works in policy is that you've got to remember that evidence doesn't land onto a blank sheet of paper. It lands into a group of people, the policymakers, whoever they are, who have come with a worldview, with a set of assumptions, with a set of priorities, uh, and with a set of constraints. And the evidence has to, will, will be filtered through those, and it necessarily will be. And so I think it's very important for academics working who are trying to influence policy to think about the yeah, the, the cultural media, if you like, of the policymakers that they're trying to land it in, and what what, what are they solving for? What are they thinking about? Uh, and what are they what are they assuming? Um, and also that academia has a set of values and a culture associated with it, um, of a, a particular sort of mode of inquiry, mode of operating, maybe some political leanings, and and those colour how it is seen. And you saw some of this in the you know the debate in the Brexit referendum about we've had enough of experts mm. now. Part of that is possibly we don't like what the experts are telling us. But it's also partly um, we've had enough of people who have the characteristics of experts uh, from a particular cultural background, a particular part of the country, maybe a particular socioeconomic background. Uh, and it's as much a, a view that um, expertise was prioritising the views and values of a certain segment of society as opposed to a comment about the underlying quality of the research or the expertise itself. And I think it's very important for academics to remember that they come with a set of cultural and values baggage of their own and how they're seen by outsiders, which colours um, what, how their work is interpreted by, by policymakers and what it means. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in the book when you um, said that policymaking is a non-linear process. Yeah. I think quite often, well, for us in publishing, I suppose, when we're thinking about how to get the research to the policymakers, we imagine it going through a set of stages and look at how we can um, engage in them. But it is much messier than that, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And one of the things I always tell people who are trying to influence government is remember that it's quite random. It's quite events driven. It's quite unpredictable. And that sort of the pattern tends to be that nothing happens for a long time. And then an awful lot happens rather quickly and unpredictably. Yeah. Um, the great uh, great book, Public Policy of a Classic, um, um, by Baumgart and Jones, or Punctuated Equilibrium is their concept where so things are flat and then suddenly sort of burst into life and then sort of go back to a different equilibrium afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and that's, in my experience, that's, that's a, an excellent description of a lot of how policy works. Uh, whereas the sort of the linear rational process is you might get it in some areas, but in the more the more politically salient and high profile something is, the more likely it is to be in sort of bursts of activity mm. rather than something that looks like a neat policy model on a, on a spreadsheet. Which is very frustrating for us. <laughs> um, oh, for everybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> People involved. Um, yeah, you know, well, of course, yeah. Because it's, it's, it's not controlled by... And one of the reasons it behaves like that is that you, you don't have, like, a controlling mind of a policy-making process because you've got the media, you've got parliament, you've got civil servants, you've got pressure groups, you've got politicians. So, so, so there, there isn't a kind of... A, a neat, you know, well, there isn't a sort of, yeah, controlling person with a spreadsheet. It's more chaotic yeah. than that. 
So when you say it's events driven, what kind of events do you mean? Um, it can be all sorts of events, actually, that drive policy change. I mean, I think in my experience, I can remember you know, big policy changes that were driven by um, sort of external crises or things getting things happening. So you know, a classic would be a sort of a disaster, which, you know, um, like I an mean, extreme recent example would be Grenfell Tower, would be mm, up where right. then actually you know, the whole policy of how we do building control and building safety will, is changing and has to change sort of suddenly, didn't, because you suddenly realise there was a problem that no one understood. Um, other example would be um, judicial reviews and court cases. I've certainly been involved in cases where um, you know, the government lost a court case um, and they had to change policy very dramatically because the of the legal basis we're operating on was no longer no longer valid. Okay. Um, or it could be uh, a sort of media storm about something, you know, and a, a sort of a campaign in some part of the media on a particular issue. And it can also be around the the personalities of politicians, I and mean, that matters too. Different people have different approaches. You have a reshuffle. Yeah, someone someone gets reshuffled because things happen, um, and actually that can that can shift direction sometimes more than you think. Particularly, the UK system is quite centralised, so um, who, who the ministers are at the top of key departments actually matters quite a lot in the UK, because yeah. it's concentrated in the Whitehall, which I also think is a problem with the UK system, as I talk about in other parts of the book, but um, that's a characteristic of where we are at the moment. So when something like that happens, um, what do we as academics or their publishers do? Do we kind of, who, who do we... Um, who do we contact with the evidence? What do we do with what we've got in those moments? Yeah, I, and, and, and the crucial bit then is the what we've got bit, because I, I, I think um, what tends to happen in those moments is sort of a window opportunity opens. Yeah. And, and if academia or researchers or you know, think tanks are often very good at this, um, you sort of have the things you've already worked on ready. Yeah. In those moments, what I as a senior civil servant, when I was doing that job needed or politician, it, it's something that that's kind of been worked up and is quite well thought through already. So you can act quickly knowing that it's been thought about properly. So, so, so it's definitely having, having things ready to seize the opportunities is critical. As for the channels by which you get it into the system, it really varies on what the issue is, who you're trying to influence in central or local government. Is right. it something in legislative change or a budgetary change or, or not? It gets, it gets very complex. Um, mm. Individual policy areas have other different systems and different ways of working. So some have like APPGs and things like that, don't all they? All sorts of yeah. things. But, but I think it's, um, yeah, it's being able to have something ready and kind of push it through the window and the window opens is rather a rather critical um, part of the game. I think. And that would be in the form of a policy briefing document or yeah, something like uh, that? Yeah, a, a kind of something that can be understood by a, a, a harassed and under pressure yeah. policymaker. Quickly. They to, yeah, they don't need to read a 58-page um, document with lots of regression analysis in it. They can um, yeah, get, yeah. Get, some, get the headlines quickly and understand why it makes sense. Yeah, oh, brilliant. That's very useful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, just looking more broadly again, generally, how can we change things so we can do a better job of taking culture and values into, into account? You make some specific recommendations in the book. Yeah, my number one is about being honest about it and about being honest about where what we're doing is a values based decision or where we're trying to affect culture or where culture matters. And I think just in sort of political dialogue and policy dialogue and policy research, we, do, we, we often have these things sort of buried under the surface a little bit. So mm -hmm. that's my, my number one recommendation. Um, then there's a bit about um, which reflects back to how culture affects policy with that sort of culture at the front line being critical, um, meaning I think we should there's a case for decentralising more policy making and policy uh, discretion to uh, 
front line and indeed non-state actors in civil society, and also putting more effort um, around sort of research and evaluation into not trying to hold a big central programme to account for a sort of long-term piece of policy evaluation, but much more rapid, real-time understanding of what's going on with a focus on evaluation that helps frontline day-to-day workers improve, with continuous improvement in their practice. So rather than how can we tell, how can we help DfE over a five-year period redesign the curriculum, more what do teachers need to know today to do a better job than they did yesterday, um, right. in a very micro, continuous improvement, professional development kind of way. Uh, I think there's a shift we need, we need to make, make there. We've talked about how to use evidence better and, and how to use research better. That's, that's a key, key part of the story as well. And another bit I mentioned in the book is around organisations, because mm. organisations carry culture and values. And I think there's an underused policy tool of building organisations that can sort of embody a set of values and a culture and a way of doing things and sort of carry that through. Uh, I talked about in the book about the history of building societies and how, mm. you, how not entirely through conscious policy choice, but more bottom up, you sort of develop this set of institutions that had a particular way of doing finance and financial services. It's actually very, very beneficial, very values based. And when you unwound that value base by demutualising them in the 1980s and 90s, we saw what happened. You end up with Northern Rock. Um, and, and so, so it was interesting. You had, the, you had these institutions that really were grounded in a particular culture and, and, a, and a set of ethical values about finance. We had a very positive social benefit. And I think actually policymakers thinking about how you can build institutions that kind of uh, hold those values and sustain them over time is actually a really interesting tool that we, we sometimes do it, but we underplay it, I think. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was the organisational stuff was really interesting in the book. It's not something I thought about before. Um, so my final question is, how do you hope that the book will enable policymakers and those providing evidence to do things differently? What do you want the book to achieve? Well, I, want, um, I, I want people to reflect on these issues. And I think okay, that's the point I made a minute ago. I think a lot of it, I'd like people to be honest with themselves, honest with each other about when what they're doing does involve a values trade off is really about culture, is about sending sending messages and symbols and cultural narrative as opposed to pretending that everything is about sort of economics and numbers and and sort of uh, harder edges of delivery. It's sort of reflecting that these broader dimensions, um, culture and values, a lot of it's not written down, less rational, uh, more, harder to grapple with, but we need to grapple with those things if we're going to make policy better. And I hope everyone People involved in policy and people involved in trying to influence policy just uh, have some of those same reflections that I did and think about how to improve and adapt their own practice accordingly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Stephen. There's definitely a lot to think about there, but it will it will be really useful for people. Um, Culture and Values at the Heart of Policymaking is published by Policy Press, and you can find more information on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.